Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and a collection of sounds, some words, some bird calls, a few bars of music, which describe a few ways of feeling about the world inside and out on a Saturday in March. This week we meet the Galway cello and the luthier who built it. Paddy Woodworth chases cranes in the writings of Peter Matheson, and Rob Long has some advice on dealing with evolving business models in the TV industry. But we begin as we mean to go on using our ears. Current confinements and our indoor winter has found us listening to more music and podcasts when the going was good, and at other times just taking in more consciously all the inadvertent noises of our neighbourhoods. Sound gained a new status in the pandemic as that part of the world that's allowed to enter our homes without fear. Among those contemplating this invisible shift is producer and composer Kevin Brew, who right now brings us a trilogy of audio epiphanies on the consolation of pop, the joy of feedback, and beginning with the sound world of the young Franz Kafka. I sit in my room in the headquarters of the noise of the whole apartment. Franz Kafka, aged 28, writing his short piece, Great Noise, in the middle of another morning at the Kafka household, an apartment at 36 Niklasgaza, Prague. Someone shouts out, Has father's hat been brushed yet? The canaries sing. An oven door snaps shut. His father, Herman, barges in because in this apartment, Kafka Sr. has to pass through Franz's bedroom to get to his breakfast. Kafka is hypersensitive to noise. The sound of his father's dressing gown trailing along the floor, barely a noise at all, becomes, in Kafka's hearing, an intolerable scraping of fabric against wood. Those same ears could be dreamily haunted by sound. Kafka's one-time fiancée, Felisa Bauer, worked for a company that made dictaphones. I would like to make a thousand recordings with your voice, wrote the smitten, though hesitant, Franz. That lover's whisper trapped in static, the dressing gown swish that fills Kafka with dread reminding us of the intimate power of sound, entering our experience without asking permission, like perfume, like smoke, invisible disturbances in ponds of air make ripples that reach the inner ear. Then the nerves of hearing talk to the nerves of worry or the nerves of wonder. It could be a fragile listener on the other side of that door when we burst in to make what we like to think is our great noise. My guitar heroes are more like anti-heroes. They're not the ones who scrunch up their faces for endless solos. My heroes are soft-spoken, sensitive souls who put their melancholy into heavy guitar riffs. Bands like Smashing Pumpkins, The Breeders, or My Bloody Valentine. Often you see them at the crucial moment in the song, their feet raised, ready to stamp down on their distortion pedals, to create a gigantic chord, a crescendo. When we hear these huge guitar waves, the inner child, the self, the soul, the wild animal, 
whatever you keep in there, wants to respond. It feels as though finally someone is speaking up for us humans, once proud circles, forced to live as squares, with our jobs and our phones, with the hurt printed on nerve endings in private moments. We feel the tension of guitar wire and the tension in us. Across the stadium, we roar in agreement with the secret messages hidden in bar chords. The concert ends with feedback, the screeching noise of a guitar left leaning against an amp, the sound waves vibrating the strings and the pickups until the guitar is playing itself, and that energy is fed back to the amp, the speaker, the guitar, in a perfect tantrum of input and output. This feedback has been filling the air since the band left the stage. We wonder if we should have brought our earplugs. That's enough of that, says the house engineer. He closes the fader and it's time to go. But all the way home, it rings in our ears. There's the music you admit to liking, and the secret tears you've saved for pop songs in restaurants during dinner by yourself. I remember Karma Chameleon and how it made me quake in the back of the car on the way to school. Soon the song would end, and I'd have to face multiplication tables and a new teacher, and the song seemed to be about that dread, even though it was more about a lover changing spots. Every breath you take, the winner takes it all. Feelings, whoa, whoa, feelings. These audio epiphanies won't work if the song is cool. It's the lack of cool that makes these audible embraces burst out among the masses and up the charts. The stars sing the hook and take it up a semitone for the final triumphant version of the chorus. These songs feel like hugs after rows in the kitchen, when the persona you've built up needs to be destroyed to live with love. When your aspirational, non-existent self, who accepts loads of awards and has a perfectly taut belly, is stripped down to someone more recognisable who digests food, who pulls up weeds, who is slightly too warm when leaning against another forehead to say sorry. Then there's the music you don't like, but maybe it works its magic on someone important. This means you've to open your ears to everything. James Last, Daniel O'Donnell, a jukebox of cheesiness that makes you cringe. Then... While you wait at your table for one in the restaurant, has the waiter forgotten you? Cindy Lauper sings time after time, and you realise that pop will always melt your heart. Thoughts on sound worlds lost there from Kevin Brew, with thanks to Aidan Matthews and Radio One's A Living Word.
The Chilissimo Festival of Cello Music is the latest Galway 2020 event to find itself transported to 2021, with its offerings going online this week. Things started on Thursday with a concert streamed live from Kylemore Abbey. On the programme was a world premiere of a piece for cello and voice composed by Bill Whelan and performed by Naomi Beryl on the Galway Cello, an instrument created by Luthia Kuras Tuxidi from Galway Tim with a cladder-flavoured design. Back when the first wave was about to derail Chelissimo 2020, Culturefile spoke to Talk City about the life of a luthier and about his Galway cello. My name is Kouros uh, Talk City. I was born in Germany. I've been living here in Ireland since 1994. My training is I'm a cabinet maker. That was my initial trade. Then I gradually moved into the, the making of instruments. I ended up um, going to a specialized school in England near Nottingham to train to make violin, viola and cello and also to learn about restoration. Looking back so in history, um, say Stradivarius and uh, would have been an apprentice of Nicola Amati, for, for instance. So, so that would have been the traditional approach, but I couldn't do that, couldn't go down that route. So I, the school that I went to is specialised, it's like a college, and you learn exclusively to make stringed instruments. Now they have a side branch where they work on pianos, and you learn about pianos, but the the main is the they're known for this. Schools like that would be around all around the world. There's a famous one Mittenwald, one in Mirkur, and this style of making is kind of recognized around the world. Sometimes you hear somebody saying, Oh, that's a Mirkur school instrument, or that's a school classic Magna Kirchen, or that's a Mittenwald instrument, because of the training. All makers sort of look up to the, the, the old makers, the, the golden period, that have a soft spot for Nicola Amati, where Stradivarius, he kind of pushed the boundaries and, and kind of turned the instrument into more of a kind of a racehorse. To, to use that, that phrase, um, they, they became much stronger in their projection, their, their shapes and everything, where um, sort of Amati and, and uh, he would have been sort of Baroque, sort of early Baroque and, and um, uh, that middle Baroque period. Um, and the instruments, they were more kind of played in, in smaller surroundings the likes of Anne-Sophie Mutter or somebody like that. They tend to go more for the projecting instruments because they want to fill the concert hall. The setting would be more sort of like um, chamber music, um, smaller groups, smaller projection. I remember the first time when I, I held a, a, an Amati instrument and I was looking in the corner and I could see knife marks and I was thinking, here 
was somebody and they probably slipped a bit with the knife and they left a slight, a slight indentation with the knife and they didn't bother taking it out. And this all happened 400 years ago, 300 years ago. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this and he was probably just like myself sitting there with a knife and doing exactly the same. Somebody once said to me, it's, it's, it's almost like a painting. Um, it's nice to see the tool marks a little bit like brush strokes to see this is how the, the instrument was created. Almost like here are the layers of the paint that created this beautiful painting. Anna Lardi of Music for Galway. She came to me with the idea of the Galway cello. I was immediately um, drawn to the idea because like a cello is quite a big instrument so it, it it gave the the possibility to to build in lots of uh, detail, especially around the head, because the, the the head or the scroll is kind of like a, the creative part of the maker. That's how the the maker will express their their style, and um, where the body is more the functional bit. And um, so I I could see with the cello that was a great idea because we could build in lots of details into and and that's when i threw out the idea with the the head the clatter ring as a as a scroll in my head there was almost like a transformation happening if 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 you took your listener now and we we, we go on this journey and we're looking at the side view and front view of a standard scroll so you've got the the, the peg box where the pegs are set in and then it sweeps into this kind of the swirls and the curves of the, the, the actual scroll. So I left the design of the peg box because that's the functional bit, obviously. And this the scroll itself, the swirls, changed into two arms and like two hands that were curving around and they're holding a heart with the crown on top. I put the best foot forward and trying to make an instrument as good, good a sounding as I can. With this Galway cello, it is going to be a challenge because what I'd really like to see is a lot of, in, uh, a lot of cellists to play on it and to play the whole range from right the bottom of the fingerboard right up to almost to the bridge and really do a lot of playing on it. There's no point just tickling it because it needs to open up and it needs to start playing in. But I can't influence that. This is just in the hands of music for Galway. Kuros Toxidi there on the Galway Cello and the Cellissimo Festival runs until the 31st of March and includes an online exhibition of the Galway Cello. Search for Cellissimo online.
And next on the Culture File Weekly, who cares about cranes? Cranes, the birds, have appeared before on our naturalist bookshelf in the pages of Aldo Leopold's A Sand County Almanac. But the largest flying bird on Earth has proved just too evocative for nature writers to leave alone, and this time Paddy Woodworth takes down Peter Matheson's 2001 account of his travels in pursuit of cranes, the birds of heaven. There is something about cranes that make them very special birds to us. Perhaps it's because they walk upright on two long legs and see the world from much the same perspective as the human eye, yet they can also soar to great heights. They disappear into the heavens, trailing bugling calls that haunt us. A rare music read across the continents and the centuries as an intimation of immortality. In 2003, in pursuit of a book that never quite happened, I followed the spring migration of cranes from southern Spain through the Pyrenees and southern France. I then had to switch from car to plane to reach Sweden, just in time to witness their extravagant courtship dances. I was fascinated by the different meanings these birds evoked in different cultures. In Spain's Estremadura, the most African landscape in Europe, they are welcomed as the seasonal promise that an intolerably hot summer has ended. In the Swedish wetlands, they are greeted with joy as the harbingers of new life, relaxing the frozen hands of winter. My journey was inspired by another book, Peter Matheson's The Birds of Heaven. Matheson was a remarkable American. Raised in East Coast privilege, he pursued a career as a novelist in post-war Paris with other literary-minded young expats like William Starron and James Baldwin. In this period, as he revealed in 2006, he was also working for the newly-born CIA in a fit of misguided idealism but he would later be a scourge of the FBI's persecution of Native Americans and a fierce critic of America's role in degrading the world's natural landscapes. He did not become as successful as he perhaps deserved as a fiction writer. His shadow country is surely one of the great American novels, an epic journey into the dark, valiant and greedy heart of his nation. Somewhat to his personal frustration, however, he remained much better known as a nature writer. Among these books, The Snow Leopard, in particular, reflects another of his great passions, a sceptical obsession with Zen Buddhism. With energy and daring, he seeks but never finds this elusive blonde leopard across Tibet's mountains. Haunted all the time by his wife's terminal illness at home and by the ephemerality of all our lives. In Birds of Heaven, written on the cusp of the new century, he confronts death in its most terrifying form, the extinction not only of species, but of entire ecosystems, our suicidal destruction of our home places. The cranes are the greatest of the flying birds, he writes, and to my mind they're the most stirring, because the horn cries of their voices like clarion calls out of the furthest skies, summon our attention 
to our own swift passage on this precious earth. And he continues, Perhaps, more than any other living creatures, they evoke the retreating wilderness, the vanishing horizons of clean water, earth and air, upon which their species, and ours too, though we learn it very late, must ultimately depend for survival. So he journeys across five continents, often accompanied by George Archibald, the tireless founder of the International Crane Foundation, to find out whether the 15 species of crane can flourish once again on this earth. And because these birds travel long distances, very often between wintering and breeding grounds, and they need healthy ecosystems all along their migration routes, their protection and restoration also sustains what Matheson calls the astonishing variety of forms in nature we call biodiversity. And to his own astonishment, he writes that after his journeys, a curious optimism has opened in my heart like a strange blossom. And he finds that some of the species are actually making a comeback, albeit a very fragile one. His book is a riveting account of the contemporary state of nature across the world. As a bonus, it is illustrated by the luminous paintings of Robert Bateman, which, like Matheson's prose, fuse evocative beauty with meticulous accuracy. Cranes have long been extinct in Ireland, but they're turning up here again. And just before the first lockdown, I travelled from Dublin to Galway by train. Gazing out over our degraded boglands, two huge flying birds caught my eye, just for an instant. Then the train had flashed past them. Cranes, I said to myself in disbelief. I immediately dismissed the notion as wishful thinking. But then I learned that several other people saw a pair of cranes in the West over the following weeks, turning up like emblems of hope and renewal across our troubled land. Paddy Woodworth there on Peter Mattison's The Birds of Heaven, and the crane recordings were from the Rügen Islands in northern Germany, courtesy of Chris Watson. Little acorns are apparently involved in the origin story of mighty oaks, which is handy, otherwise how would we be able to teach the young about change and growth and evolving business models? And without evolving business models, where would Rob Long find a teachable moment for his latest epistle from Hollywood? This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. I knew a writer once who, after a long, and I mean years-long, production deal, found out it was not going to be renewed. And that sounds like a euphemism for being fired, and it sort of is, but it's not that exactly. Studios and networks have constantly changing business strategies. I'm tempted to say business models because that's the meaningless business jargon you hear more often than any other meaningless business jargon these days. But the basic business model of a studio doesn't really change. Get people to do something in front of a camera that you can sell for more than what you pay them. Well, that's pretty much it. 
and has been since Laurel and Hardy carried that piano all the way up those stairs. So the model is the same, but the strategy can shift. A studio may want to spend more money on one-hour gritty action drama writers because there's a big global market for those shows, or half-hour comedy writers because suddenly those are popular again, or maybe a streaming service will want writers who can develop complicated fantasy universes, or maybe everyone just decides to hire no writers at all, which is an increasingly popular option. Now, my writer friend was on the wrong side of that kind of strategy shift, and so in the nicest possible way, he was told by the president of the studio— which was followed up by a chilling memo from a studio business affairs attorney that when his current deal was up in two months, he'd be free to pursue other opportunities, including, the CEO hoped, opportunities at that actual same studio. They were eager to be in business with him, he was told. They admired and respected his talent, he was told. They just didn't want to, you know, pay him. Well, they didn't want to be contractually obligated to pay him. They like him, but wanted the relationship to be on a project-by-project basis rather than a whopping multi-year contract commitment. So he sat in his office fuming about the heartlessness and short-sightedness of the studio CEO and not, which would have been more logical, about the changing landscape for televised entertainment. And he sulked for a month or two, during which time other writers with new deals and new projects would knock gingerly on the door to check out his office setup and measure the rooms and hold up paint chips. And a few weeks before his actual last day, he had had it. He told his assistant to start packing up everything. So this is it? His assistant asked. Yes, the writer replied. The deal is over? His assistant asked. Yes, the writer replied. Um, am I over? His assistant asked. Yes, the writer replied. See, in all of his sulking and fury and rage at a studio strategy shift at a basic and impersonal economic imperative, the writer forgot to sit his assistant down and say, Hey, once this deal is over, I lose the office, the parking space, the free Diet Cokes, and the assistant. And all along, the assistant clearly thought, You know, I think he's going to take me with him wherever he goes. He'll probably pay me out of his own pocket for a while. But what his assistant didn't do was ask, because people tend not to ask questions if there's even a small voice inside of them telling them that they may not like the answer. So the writer felt fired by the studio, and the assistant felt fired by the writer. But the truth is, neither one was really fired. It's just that the sunny part of the business they had occupied for so long, warmed by the rays of the sunny money machine, had passed into shade. But both of them felt abused, and actually in the story, the assistant should have asked, but the writer should have been more forthcoming because that's the nice thing to do, the considerate thing to do, the right thing to do, but especially because the assistant, who told me this story a few days ago, is now a powerful development executive at a big streaming outfit, and the writer, apparently, is coming into pitch to his old assistant, who still hates him next week. I mean, talk about a strategy change. The point is, 
you have to be prepared. A young writer called me the other day, and he was ecstatic. His first script had been set out by his brand new agent, and it had been very well received. He was scheduled for meetings all over town, and he was excited. And that's how you can tell when someone is new to the business. There's a meeting, and they're excited about it. But he's a nice guy and a good writer, and I make it a policy to be nice and encouraging and supportive to all young writers on the theory that at some point when they've hit it really big, they may feel that they owe me somehow. And when my career is fading and returning to its original dust, which might be moments from now, they'll remember me and maybe hire me even though I'm old and lose track of my thoughts. Now, I recognize that being nice and supportive for some people is a character thing. They're nice and supportive anyway, so why not direct that to up-and-coming writers? But to me, it's less about being a nice guy and more about needing a retirement plan. So, Two days later, my young friend, now a good deal older, at least spiritually, calls me up to complain. He said, you know, a couple of people actually started the meeting by saying they didn't really respond to the story. They just liked the writing. What does that even mean? It means, I said, that they may not have responded to this particular piece, or maybe it's just not something that they're in the market to buy, but they think you're a good writer and that you're about to write something amazing, and they all want to know you and track you. Like a hunter tracks an animal, he asked. Exactly, I said. And then I said some more encouraging words, at which point the young writer thanked me for being supportive and for being a friend. And then he said something about how nice it was that I wasn't tracking him like a hunter tracks an animal, at which point I had to cut the conversation short. You should get to work, I said. I have a business model that's impossible to change. I didn't say, but I thought it. And that's it for this week. Next week, we will fake laugh. For Martini Shot, this is Rob Long. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more instrumental amiability in a week's time. Till then, bye now.